Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. What they would do is they dealing with prospectors or, or geologists in Western Australia in particular. And there'd be a smell of gold or silver or nickel or copper or anything like that. And there's a possibility there could be something there, but they might need $300,000 to do some drilling. They would create a bit of enthusiasm and hype, do a good presentation, go and visit some brokers and say, look, we need $300,000 to fund a drilling program for this. You know, there might be something there, maybe not, but we'll have a lot of fun having a go. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. It's often said that the Australian share market is all banks and miners, which made me realise I haven't touched the mining sector yet. Mining has a personal resonance for me. My dad was a mining engineer, and as I was growing up, he'd be off in Mount Isa, Broken Hill, or Newcastle, or Zeehan, installing lifts in mine shafts. My childhood is full of memories of photos of rough-hewn, dirt-covered men in overalls and hard hats. To talk about this industry, I'm pleased to welcome Warwick Grigger, chairman of Far East Capital to the podcast, who's not wearing his hard hat today, <laughs> looking much neater than that. G'day, Warwick. G'day, Phil. Warwick's career in mining began at Hammersley Iron. He then became Australia's first specialist gold mining analyst. He founded Far East Capital, which is a small mining company financier and corporate advisor. So, Warwick, that's a brief bio. Can you fill in some of your story, please? I applied for a job as a mining analyst by basically writing to 17 different stockbrokers and said, these are the reasons I had a list of nine points as to why you'll miss out on money if you don't give me a job. And I was fortunate that Australia's number one mining stockbroker saw something and offered me a job in nineteen late 1982. And in 1983, I could see that gold was where the action was going to be for the next few years. So I put my hand up to be a specialist gold mining analyst, and uh, that's how the story started. What does a gold analyst do? One of the most important things in in being a a mining analyst is being able to think three-dimensionally. We get reports that the companies make on drilling. What you have to do is take that drilling, plot it up, get a a feel for a three-dimensional picture of, of what they're talking about. Because when it comes down to mining, it's not just getting a good grade here, a good rock chip sample there, or a good intersection. You have to deal with a whole population of results. Companies invariably, they'll give you the best results, the best 5% of the results, but they need to be put in perspective with the other 95%, which they're not mentioning. You have to be good at statistics. You understand the distribution of gold within mineral systems. You also have to understand the shape of an ore body. Can it be practically mined? Typically, geologists hate mining engineers because you might have a million ounce resource and the geologist uh, 
presents it to a mining engineer, and that engineer says, yeah, well, we could probably get half a million ounces out of that. And the geologist gets upset because he's had his, his resource butchered. But being a mining engineer is all about can you make money out of it? What do you leave in the ground? And that's something the mining analyst has to come to grips with and not allow himself to be over-enthused by the excitement of exploration without going to the next step to say, well, can you make money out of it? There's, there's lots of companies running around saying they've got a million ounces and often they're around previous mining sites that were successful mines. But the gold that was left behind was left there because it wasn't economic. So the conversion to mineable ounces, say out of a million ounces, might be 200,000 ounces. So while they're promoting a million, they're only going to get 200,000 ounces. And that compares, say, with a virginal ore body, a new discovery, where you might expect to get 50 or 60% of that gold that is mineable because no one's picked the eyes out of it. You've got the chance to get the best grade, and it's all about making profit at the end of the day. So in mining, it's about the term is economically recoverable deposits. It's, okay, there might be something there that you want to take out of the ground, but it's only what's economically viable to do so. Is that the case? Yes, it's, it's all about making a dollar. Just having a resource, just having someone says there's gold here or there's there's coal or whatever you're talking about, you've got to be able to engineer that, get it out of the ground, process it, and come up with a saleable product. It's not about just having something. Mines are not found, they're made. It's a, it's a very important truism. If you can't repay your capital within the first couple of years, then you might never repay it. So a lot of thought and design and engineering goes into any mine that's developed, if it's developed professionally. Australian mining ranges between global giants like BHP and Rio, all the way to a bloke with a shovel standing next to a hole. Can you give us an overview of the industry in Australia? Australia is blessed with good geology um, and good land access in most parts, particularly in Western Australia, South Australia, Western Queensland, where there's no competing population. These areas, quite often, they're marginal for farming. And in fact, the farming industry relies on the mining industry in many cases for additional jobs. Um, agriculture is very seasonal. You get your droughts, you get your good years. And mining companies that employ hardworking farming type people, you know, do a lot of good in these country areas. They help to keep the fabric of society together. With the prospectivity and the Australian mentality, we are probably the, the best breeding ground for mining companies in the world. We're not uh, obsessed with over-regulation. Everyone is happy to have a go. And in fact, Australia was built on mining. Mining opened up the inland parts of Australia. And most families that have been here for more than a couple of generations will be able to point to someone in their family history who were in the mining areas. We've got the big companies, Rio, um, we've got BHP, uh, now we've got Fortescue. Over time, we've had a lot of companies come through the system. With any ore body, it's got a finite life. 
It needs good management to plan beyond the original mine on which it might have been started. So you've got the whole spectrum in Australia. You've got the little guys, the speculative, the punting guys, the high risk, right through to the big companies. Uh, It's a false belief to think that the big companies are particularly lower risk than the smaller ones. Frequently you see BHP make monumental mistakes in in acquisitions. They're, They're so big that they need to make big acquisitions and developments to make any impact on their profits. Invariably, they miss the early gain that the smaller guys will make. It's more thematic and strategic investing, and it's amazing over the last 40 years how many boo-boos they've made along the way. In terms of how you make money, when there's a discovery made, so you know that there's something there, you just don't know how big it is. You know that it's not just an isolated mineral occurrence. There's size, there's structure. It might be half a kilometre long, it might be a kilometre long, 30 or 40 metres wide. Your sampling, your early work will point to this and you can say, well, hang on, there's something here of substance. The best profit appreciation for an investor is to come into that point so you know it's it's got some substance. The best valuating work will be over the next one or two years as they systematically drill out these ore bodies, you get to the point where hey, we've got an ore body, might be a million ounces of gold. And then the company starts to think, well, how do I turn this into a mine? So then you start the process of working out what's economic and what's not. Then you have to figure out how to get the finances. Then you've got to get the team together and the development, and you have all different sorts of risks. So in the life of a a mining company starting from a junior, you have the exploration risk, the grassroots, which is, is there something there? Then you have the proving up stage, which is lower risk. Then you get to the financing and, and development approvals, all that sort of stuff. And that's probably the highest risk, in my opinion. How much of the Australian share market is represented by mining? It varies. When mining's depressed, it's, it's less than... 10% when things are going well, 20% is not uncommon. And this is, this is in terms of the, the size of the market capitalisation? Total market capitalisation, yeah. 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 BHP is a big part of a lot of Australians' portfolios just because of the sheer size and weight it has in the share market. But um, you use the term junior miners. What is a junior miner? A junior miner is essentially a company with one mine. That's how it starts out. That will usually come from a successful exploration program, so it would have probably started out as an explorer. It develops a mine, and assuming it does it successfully, then it's got a project. It might be a four-year project. It might be a 10-year project. It could be in any sort of commodity. The next challenge for that company is to go from a one-mine company to a two or three or four, and you're constantly looking to improve, to upgrade, and... BHP started out like that. BHP started out with one of the best uh, base metal projects in the world. It went into steel. It went on to a lot of other things. The big money being made today is out of iron ore, but that didn't happen until after it had been around for more than 50 years. So a junior is basically a company which is not really considered blue chip. It's got the vulnerability of one operation. It's got management which is still learning. The aim is to become... 
In terms of size, you'd call a junior mining company anything less than, say, $300 million today. You know, you've got gold companies out there today that are five, six, seven billion dollars that started out, in my memory, they were down around about five or ten million dollars. Mm. Over time, they've grown, they've purchased assets. Having a good mining company is not just about f- discovering. Once you get to a certain size, you need a whole range of opportunities. It takes many years from first discovery to proving up and developing a mine. Quite often you'll find mines that are badly run, especially junior companies where management is not well suited. They don't understand the geology. They've forgotten about exploration. Those sort of companies, if you've got another mining company which has got talent, they can see, well, if we did this differently, if we spent a bit of money here or there, we could make this uh, a much more successful operation. So it's not uncommon to have transactions involving the purchase of these things. It's not necessarily takeovers of companies. What happened about five years ago, the Americans and Canadians pulled out of the gold mining industry in Australia to many extents, and the Australians bought them, and they bought them very well. And Saracen's one such company, Northern Star's another. We do have some very good managers there that um, have really done the country proud internationally for its reputation as a, as a good mining country. What's a penny dreadful? You hear that term around that, uh, and a lot of mining stocks are what are called penny dreadfuls. Yeah, penny dreadfuls come about because they're so cheaply priced. Now, with, say, in the last 20 years, when you get billions of shares on issue, it's 0.1 of a penny. I mean, it's even worse than a penny nowadays. Um, These are companies that that survive on fear and greed and the rumour mill and opportunity, speculative opportunity. These sort of companies, if you buy shares in there, you're basically buying tickets in a horse race. They might do well because they promote the shares well. They might have nothing of substance. You know, Blue Sky Mining is an example of one of those companies. It's a gambling arena and you can't run fundamentals. It's all about what if, what if we get this, how can we get people to buy shares, what price they issue shares at, what possible opportunities you might have. Now, there's one, a couple of companies as an example, Samantha and Samson, one of the best promoters and one of the best geologists in the business. They would have been a penny dreadful in their early days. What they would do is they deal with prospectors or, or geologists in Western Australia in particular, and there'd be a smell of gold or silver or nickel or copper or anything like that and there's a possibility there could be something there but they might need three hundred thousand dollars to do some drilling these companies they're pretty smart they're not about just um, taking a punt and walking away they would create a bit of enthusiasm and hype do a good presentation go and visit some brokers and say look we need three hundred thousand dollars to fund a drilling program for this You know, there might be something there, maybe not, but we'll have a lot of fun having a go. So what they would do is they would do a placement to the brokers, the the brokers' clients. The brokers would make some commission out of it so they'd be happy. The company would have the money to spend. The investors who bought the shares get the hubris and the excitement of we're drilling, there might be something there. And the shares will move just on how well people can get enthused. At the end of that drilling program, They've either found something or they haven't, so the shares might come back down. But because the company raised the $300,000 there, they haven't put the company at risk. These 
particular two companies, they did this over a number of years, again and again and again, and eventually they created value. They found something worthwhile. One of the problems with companies that have got shares selling at less than one cent, say 0.2 or 0.3, there's no volatility in the share price. If you buy shares at 0.2 of a cent, a lot of people will do that and immediately put them on sale at 0.3% so they can make 50% on their money. And they'll sit there, it might be a month, it might be two months. But that doesn't encourage people to come in. You need share prices to go up and down to be able to make money. And that's one of the cautions. I don't like dealing in, in shares that are too pricely cheap. They're penny dreadfuls, yes, but they're not penny dreadfuls that'll give you the, the opportunity. Um, so that's something to be aware of if a company's got billions of shares on issue. Yeah, because that's something people see. They see some of these companies say, well, what's the risk? It's only worth, you know, 0.002 of a cent or something. But um, That's a very naive way to look at it because mm, it's still money. The price doesn't matter. It's still... It, it, it depends on how much money you put in. Now, the reality is you should never go into any sort of shares, be it mining shares or industrials, unless you can afford to lose that money. You should never go into debt to buy mining shares in particular. People lose money generally because they have to sell, because they can't wait for the next cycle. Maybe it's better to sell even if you're losing money if a better opportunity comes along. It's a constant question you're asking yourself, is this a better racehorse? Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If a listener is interested in getting involved in investing in the mining industry and they've got no experience, we're talking about someone that's got no idea at all that they might work in the mining industry or they might um, have family, what would be the best way to start? Um, for someone starting out, I'd pick 10 or 20 mining stocks. Our goal sector is at least 30 or 40% of our entire area, so probably half of them should be gold and the rest of the other commodities. As a general comment on these various commodities, gold is great because it's simple. You can sell whatever you can produce. There's a lot of traps, but it's easier for smaller companies. It's very hard to find copper companies in the junior end that make money. It's a train wreck of projects that haven't worked. Base metals, uh, silver, lead, zinc, and, and throw in that copper, they're harder because you can come up with a mine and develop it and you sell a concentrate, but there might only be three or four concentrates in the world that will buy from you. So you've got to look at the sales aspect. Someone sent me something on a tin project uh, yesterday, and it sounds good on the presentation, but I've never known a tin project to work in Australia uh, other than probably the best hard rock tin mine in the world, which is Renison. And even that's hard work, and there's no super profits there. Lithium had its boom, but then it collapsed. And because everyone jumped in because they think... Batteries, lithium, makes sense. I never played lithium because I didn't believe it. Um, I was busy with other things. I was playing around with graphene, which was a long-term growth thing. 
a lot of money was made in lithium and a lot is being lost now. So even when you actually are genuine enough to develop a mine, things can change. Another example of that is graphite. I never bought into graphite because graphite, it's everywhere. So the, the market doesn't want to know too much information. The promoters don't want to know too much information. The more you know, the more conservative you get. And these booms will come along and it's fine to play them because that's where the money's flowing. But don't become a true believer. Be nimble. Take your profits when you can. There are other situations around like diamonds. If, if people get really excited by diamonds, diamond mining is at least a thousand times harder to find and develop than a gold mine. There's a a company which I've, I've backed for the last few years and I'm a shareholder of called Lucarpa Diamonds. It's got two operating mines, both profitable, and it's got some exciting exploration. People are more interested in the high-risk exploration, which could come up with an asset worth a billion dollars. But even if they did find a pipe that was diamondiferous and it was economical, the proving up stage of continuous bulk samples and testing, it's at least five years. It might sound exciting, but it's hard work. But if you look at what the company is earning on fundamentals, it is selling incredibly cheap PE multiples of two times projected earnings and maybe three times cash flow. This is one of the cheapest stocks on earnings and cash flow that you can find in the market. But people don't want to know that. They're more interested in the chance of finding a a discovery. So this is the emotional aspects. And the more I'm involved in the stock market, particularly mining, the more I realise that it's gambling, but just a bit more sophisticated than the pokies. Really? Yeah. Because I, I talk to a lot of value people, value investors, you know, and they think that they can look at a, a share and look at the earnings and they can look at all of the, the numbers that are coming out in the annual general reports and come up with a reason for why a share... Uh, should be valued at a higher or lower point than what it is at the moment. Yeah, they'll give you a reason, but that's not a guarantee. That's their opinion. What's a correct PE? You can work out dividend yields because that comes down to what you get paid in the bank. How do you factor into growth? What's the growth going to be? It's all about arguing and balance of probabilities. When I started out, commission rates were 2.5%. What's happened with the deregulation of broking, banks coming in over a period of decades, commission rates have fallen from 2.5% to bugger all, you know, 0.1, in some cases. The corollary of that is that transaction costs are much less. So you can afford to go in and out more often and it's increased the volatility. All this stuff about continuous disclosure and releasing more information so we're better informed. It's not adhered to it. It doesn't necessarily help and it's not consistent. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take the risk out of it and there's all sorts of regulations and rules that are supposed to make it safer. Well, you actually don't want to do that. If you haven't got risk, you haven't got opportunities. Possibilities. So what ASIC says, you're not allowed to release research to anyone preferentially now. It has to go to everyone or no one. So now you have analysts, that, the, the really experienced ones, have left because they're so scared to say or do anything because of fear of prosecution, or even when they've done nothing wrong. It's a perception. The role that analysts used to play in providing wisdom and insight has been diminished to just journalists that will write what their bosses want. 
even though they're not supposed to yeah, even do that. Is, this is a really interesting point that you're making here. You can't trust analysis these days no. or analysts. No, no. So when you're looking, say you're in your um, your online broking account and you see your uh, consensus recommendations, that's are you saying that's meaningless? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I I don't. If I if I look at someone's research, I want to look at their opinion if I know them, and I'll take their opinion into account. There might be a couple of little figures that I look at. But basically, that research is designed to generate sales for the brokers, designed to generate commission. It's designed to lead to corporate fees, which is where their profit margin is. A lot of the research is, is more conservative than it might have been. Some of the best research I used to write was uh, after I'd been out to lunch, had some wine and a steak with a company. And, oh, well, that was the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> now you've got to be so much more careful about what you write compliance gets into it they sanitize it so an analyst can't say what he really thinks anyway it's all about ass covering you can't make your share price go up because you stare harder at the screen Mm, mm. you've got to accept that it operates in cycles often you'll buy these shares and i've had situations where i've bought way too early um, and after two or three or four months you might think well maybe i've got it wrong and I've sold out those situations because I thought, oh, well, the, the news is out there, but no one's reacting. And a week after I sell, I might take off. And I think, bugger, I wish I'd waited a bit longer. Once you get to a certain point and you trust your judgment, you need to back your judgment as well. But at all times, through everything that I've said today, there's only one arbiter and only one law, and that's the market is always right on a day. Because that's what determines whether you make money or not. But it is, there are times when, you know, I find that most of your money is made in a three or four month period each year. The rest of the year, you might as well not be there. Is there any particular three or four months? The best months are usually after Australia Day. Um, Well, in terms of capital raising, let's talk about that because that's when you get placements and offers and, and there's more activity. The best times to raise money are February and March. Then again in September, October, November, markets will be quieter around about school holiday times, religious holidays, uh, around Christmas. You will find January is a very interesting time because if the market's been depressed up until Christmas, the bears will go away and have longer holidays. And I just want to forget the market for January. The more optimistic people will take advantage of the lower liquidity in the first few weeks of January. You can get more volatility. You can often get a New Year rally because the sellers are either done or they're away. So they can provide good opportunities. That, but That happened in 2018-19. There was a big sell-off and then in January, uh, quite a quick recovery. Yeah, that. I, I think in terms of you, you'll be looking at your individual stocks and how they're going and you look at your news flow relative to everyone else, but you've also got to look at the big picture. What's driving the the whole market, um, what's the thematic? Is it a rising Australian dollar? It's hard to get our market going really strong with it, with the rising dollar. Overseas punters are a big element of our market too. Um, Germans are particularly big traders in Australia. Really? Yep. Okay. Yeah. English, Europeans Because um, the, the FTSE, a large percentage of the FTSE is mining companies as well, like, like Australia. Yeah. Um, 
traditionally that's where the, the risk capitals come from in Australia, from London. But when our dollar is low and it's cheaper to invest, that's when the money will come, particularly from Americans. As our dollar goes up relative to theirs, there's some incentive to take some profits and pull some money out because they've made it uh, currency gains as well. But just getting back to the thematic, I've developed a technique called a sentiment oscillator, which I put in my weekly, which as an advertising plug, I don't charge for my weekly. I used to charge $40 a month, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm past that now. I, I, I'm happy just, I'm more of a mentoring role in my life. If I can disseminate my views and opinions that are responsible, that help the little guys in particular who don't have access to the more professional operators, if it helps make them better informed and and less likely to suffer damage, I'm happy to do it. So I don't charge for that. Now, most Saturdays I put that out and there might be one or two pages of writing which will focus on various themes. It might focus on individual companies. It might have economic and, dare I say, social commentary from time to time. I release it and it's got to be interesting to read. It's not made to a formula... And if I've got nothing to say, I won't release one. But in that, I also have charting commentary on 140-odd stocks. And I use this system of traffic lights, red for down, green for going up, and orange for sideways or transitional. And what I do is I take the number of stocks in downtrend and number of uptrend, get the difference, and I plot it on a graph that goes back 15 years. And there gets to be a point where on the big picture... The market's not going to go higher. And no matter how good the stock is you've got, it's going to fall. So I think you've got to step back and look at the big picture, look at the money flows. And if the market is in, a, in, a, in an exuberant state and you, you, you think you're making great money, well, just start selling. And I think, you know, whether you take 10% off or 20% off or, or whatever, it's a lot easier to sell when other people are buying because if everyone decides to sell at the same time, you lose 25% overnight. So where can people find this sentiment oscillator and the, the newsletter? I put it out in in the newsletter. If you just go to if you just go straight to fariescapital.com.au, mm-hmm. if you tick the right tabs, there's probably about four boxes you've got to tick and you can sign up for your weekly from that. Warwick Grigger, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you, Phil. And that web address to register that Warwick couldn't remember was fareastcapital.com.au slash register. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.